Internet. I don't even know. It was almost a good morning. <laughs> it was almost a good morning. I just had, like, in the last seven minutes, a complete collapse of most of my um, video software. I, I don't even know. It's here now. We'll see. And my internet for the last 24 hours, 36 hours, has been super sketchy. So I really don't know if I will even be here in a moment. But I, I plan to be. I only plan to be here this morning for about another hour. I know I'm late. I'm, I apologize. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Apparently, I'm, I don't sound so great, do I? Um, and heads up, next week probably will not be a show at all because, you know, Thanksgiving and all that. I'm going to do a little traveling. And that's kind of why I want to start that semi-vacation time a little bit earlier, meaning, you know, today. I'd like to enjoy today a little more. So we're going to be done here in about an hour. I got... One for real question I want to hit right away. I got uh, a list of other stuff I could talk about in general, but I'm also more than willing to look at what you're saying and engage what your thoughts are as all. Well, thanks for being worried about me. Um, Don't, don't. I was... I like video games. There's a video game I'm trying to mod. It's not working. So I'm like crazy overload on it. Like every free moment, go try to fix it. And I know what it is. I know what the problem is, but I don't want to believe it. So this morning when I got up, I went downstairs to where the computer is. And I was like, all right, I'm just going to, I'm going to remove everything else. I'm going to load that one thing. I'm just going to let it go. Cause it needs like several hours of loading at the start of the game to make the whole thing work. And don't ask. It's just the way it is. And then I spent two hours working on actual coding not like at the base game level of it but you know at the surface level of it try to make it work better and then uh, yeah it's not 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 a reason to worry about me well maybe it is a reason to worry about me <laughs> not a good reason to uh to miss out on this i thought i was just gonna like just 10 minutes get to let it fly and um start digging and you keep digging yeah yeah all right so so good morning all anyway and in every way First thing I'm going to do, I mean, if you got questions, throw them in the comment section and we will get onto that. But first thing I'm going to do, if I can even, I don't know. I, I've been hotkeying my keyboards to like have a new keyboard set up. I'm really happy with it by and large, but then you keep finding these other places where those hotkeys were needed for random things. Or the the app has like its own version of. I really don't like that when the app's like we don't care about what Apple says that button means. I, that that bothers me. So anyhow, so blah 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 blah. If I can figure it out, I'm gonna get us to a screen share. But then what happens if I do? Oh whoa 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 whoa. See no no. It wants to capture the screen. No don't do that. But now we're at screen share. Okay there we go. But that's not what I wanted to show you. These are my hotkeys. You don't want to see this. Okay there should be. A way to get to a picture. There it is. So, in response to the podcast uh, from Thursday, really fast, I got a couple of very good, very thoughtful emails coming in. I mean, I guess that shouldn't be surprising, but usually the faster things are less of the thoughtful things, right? And then the thoughtful stuff comes later. But uh, I thought this was a really interesting take on my comments about music. And I, I, I fretted about that. Um, and if you haven't heard it, that's fine. But I fretted about what I said and, and my, um, my suggestion or my struggle or my thoughts and how they would be received, you know, for, for a bit. And, and this really helped me though, a little bit because it, 
um, it hit the thing that I'm really trying to say. And, and I, I'll, I'm going to try to say it again one more time here at the end. So I, I had mentioned that there's this song, I number of songs in the hymnal I really like, and I feel like we don't sing them very well. And I don't think it's just my congregation. I'm not really just talking about my congregation. Although definitely there are better, I shouldn't say better and worse. There are more singing congregations and less singing congregations. There are congregations that love to sing and congregations that don't. Or just don't sing. I don't know. Maybe they love to do it. They just do, don't do it. And my contention here a little bit is that it's not that the people don't love to sing in these congregations. I mean, they may have convinced themselves of that, but I don't think there are any humans like who are born not loving to sing. They have to be taught that somehow. And maybe we never can undo any of that. But I think we're definitely not going to undo it if we're like, you can't undo it, not going to try, right? So, so yeah, well, then you're just going to never have anything change in a positive sense. So, um, so anyhow, I, I, I'm going to say more about that, but I, I found this comment to be really, really helpful. So regarding... Uh, the music. I am not all uh, upset about it, like you said, but I have some insights. I, I think there will be some people who are upset. Uh, the first time uh, that hymn, this this is uh, The Day of Shirley Drying Air, came up after coming to a Lutheran parish, it came out so beautifully I almost choked. It is, it's an amazing text. I, I, like most men, of course, don't cry, especially in public, but um, uh, now I bet we are using the same book, the same kind of organ, etc. The differences are two, the organist and the parishioners and or the choir singing. And yeah, well, th- this is true. Although, to be fair, I my organists aren't bad. They're really not. I got two of them. And it, th- but what you have to say about it, I mean, they're not they're not full time professionals either. Um, and, and your point here is less about skill and more about desire, and that has everything to do with what we already like. And I think that's really interesting. So this applies. This isn't about organist per se. It's about our willingness um, to believe we might be wrong, which is kind of my whole point in all this conversation. Our, our willingness to believe we might be wrong, question what we've assumed, let Scripture be the foundation of our rebuilding of what we know to be true, uh, keep what we can, right? Uh, but then also maybe find that there's a there's a thing that's better here or there um, that might be found. Why is there a crosshairs on my computer? Well, anyway, <laughs> continuing on. Uh, anecdote time. Senior year of high school, my band instructor had an assistant. The instructor was aging and had been teaching and conducting for decades. When he conducted a particular piece, the band played very well. When the assistant conducted, it was a disaster. Same song, same band. He asked me why I thought that was, and we agreed that the seasoned conductor gave subconscious cues. He set the tone and tempo as much with the baton as without it. Right. So, I mean, he's going to say more about this, but this is this is really interesting. There is something about the knowledge base of a leader when it comes to music. And it doesn't have to be a conductor, but there's, there's a really interesting like tidbit there in this. But the, the bigger piece is that any leader in anything isn't just leading by the by the, the science of the deal, right? But it is science, so it's wrong. It's just leading by the technical skills. They're also leading, to some extent, by other cues. And those cues can be social, emotional, psychological. It doesn't matter. They're there, though. So a lot of times we think if we just get all of the, um, the, the technical cues in order then everything's going to pan out 
and it'll all work. And so, you know, you read a couple of manuals on how to be a good business manager, right? And you go and you, you pull out five tactics and you go and you start shoving them into the office space and people are, like, are all freaked out. Well, yeah, well, because the rest of the the cues that were needed to have it make sense or put it in, in my context, what I often will do is have a, I can see like five or seven steps ahead. And so I start talking about that without talking about the two to six steps to get to step seven. And so the listener, which could be you, is like, how the heck did he get way over there? And my gosh, that's some crazy talk. And so learning to know that about myself and not, well, I'll try to, uh, try to help lead you to where I got, right? Rather than just go there myself. So this applies across the board to, to all manner of knowledge and or action and or life. Um, oh, I lost it. There, there was a cool tangent that was going to be in here. With regard to, it wasn't just music though. Oh, what was it? What was it? Um, secondary. Oh, oh, which then? Huh. In some ways, that summarizes the whole thing I've been talking about this through all these this series. Is that just because you have the the technical cues? It's not cues. Just because you have the technical logic of orthodoxy officially grasped like as as math doesn't mean you're able to give the uh the verbal cues to anybody else to understand what you're talking about <laughs> it doesn't mean you're able to convey it doesn't mean you're able to to believe it even and we're really clear about this in our confessions that uh orthodoxy is not a matter of of bare knowledge I used to hate that distinction when I when I would read through it because I was like, no, orthodoxy, it is so true. And how can you say, you know? And, and the idea is, is the accusation that the Roman Catholics were bringing against the Reformation, which is that you're saying, you know, faith alone, and that means all you have to do is like be able to answer tests or uh, questions on a quiz about Jesus and justification. This, this is like kind of literally their accusation, right? All you have to do is be able to give an assent to a couple of terms and you're saying people are saved without any regeneration, without any... See, we would say faith, though. I mean, that was our point. They, were, they heard faith as knowledge only. And we were like, no, faith is, is regeneration, sanctification, all this stuff, right? So so we were, like, really clear to say, like, no, there's no way that saving faith is just a mere affirmation of knowledge. It's not without the knowledge. And knowledge is actually, you know, maybe even 99% of it. But there is uh, your presence there, okay? Uh, a re- yeah, you being impacted by this word, you being raised from the dead by this word. So, in this way, uh, the question I have that is, not another question, the thing I would like us to just be aware of and accept and know and then like not give into if and when we see it, is that that still applies to us. Right? I mean, the Reformation's not over and really is never over. It never stops. It never stops. The Reformation in your life never stops reforming you. Mercies are new every morning, daily, by drowning, right? In your baptism. It's all starting over again. Got to learn the whole thing all over again. Sign of the cross, go on. But yeah, you know what I'm saying? So, with that said, to know that this, uh, just because I've checked off all the right boxes on my little list of of religion, of Lutheranism, 
doesn't mean I actually am, am thinking with it. I'm spiritualizing it. And, and I mean that in a good way in the sense. And being inspired by it. And it has a lot to do with these other cues then. So, so if you're sending, when you're going to talk with someone who's not a Lutheran or not a Christian, and the only thing you have as conversational cues is intellectual rigor and bare knowledge of uh, philosophical truth, uh, well, they, they might not hear you, right? And, and that's what I want us to, to like, just acknowledge that, right? Sure. Can the Holy Spirit work across languages? Absolutely. Like the whole reason I'm comfortable having this conversation is because I believe Pentecost really still is here, not in a uh, charismatic gifts kind of a way, but in a, a bare and naked trust that the Holy Spirit will do with his word what he wants to do and we can't stop him. Uh, I think what he wants to do is have us love the created order fearlessly because we know the grace of Christ has us firm and so we should not be afraid of things like uh, human engagement or of uh, of knowing that knowing God theology in the old language but knowing God is not merely a matter of math it's not queen of the sciences yes but science not really not really not the way we use that word today, not at all. And if you want to share that with somebody else, right, uh, then you have to share more than the science. You have to, we have to be believing that there is more than science to Christianity. I'm not saying there's not science. There's there's dogma. There's truth, right? Uh, but it is um, it is only one of the cues that is conveyed in confession. It's only one of them. And this, this bit about the, the band director and whatnot is, is kind of spot on, right? You can walk in and say the same words, same words, and uh, someone picks up on all sorts of other stuff because, frankly, uh, you are without love, and they can tell, <laughs> right? Or you're just trying to sell them, and they can tell. All right, so back back to the music bit. And so every organist has their favorites, which can be good or bad too. I think this is this is a really important point. But see, this goes for pastors, people, right? So if you have a song you like, you're going to play it with all your gusto. If you have a song you don't like, you're going to maybe not care as much. But then this is my question. Why? What is it about it that's made you not like it? And it has to be how you learned it. It has to be. Because in in almost every case, I mean, you can find exceptions to this. But there's almost no such thing as a bad tune. Like, almost. I, I do, I'm, it's hyperbole, so don't freak out about it. I know you can think of one. And, and if you're thinking... It's actually a really good tune. That's why it gets stuck in your head. There's, there's almost no such thing as a bad tune. Um, if it's sung well. And if it's sung like it's loved. And if that is... It, it, now doesn't mean you have to like it, right? But most songs can be uh, beautiful somehow. It's just a matter of, of learning how or having it sung to you in a way that that is. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying that every song ever played you have to like. I'm saying that the actual – now we're going back to science, right? The, the bare notes behind it, um, they're never the problem, right? 
uh, I don't know, I'm trying to think of something that's just a really awful, ugly song. Um, but if you, whatever it is, if you just strip out, you know, take the first four measures of it, and you strip out all the notes, get rid so, I mean, it shouldn't say strip out, you leave the notes, you strip out the rhythm, right? No rhythm. You strip out um, uh, all the background, everything else. You just leave the melody there, which is bare notes. It's not going to be that good because it's not done yet. But there's nothing wrong with it either, right? It, it, that's not the problem. The problem. Well, I mean, yes, if you're trying to jump from super low to super high, okay, there's a few exceptions to this, but that's not the problem. The problem is how it was sung. Right? What happened between bare notes and us making quote-unquote music that made us think this isn't worth making as music? Um, and some of it will be then, if the organist doesn't know how to make it music... Well, then it's not going to be made music, right? Or whatever musician or leader is involved. Uh, the organist, even being very skilled, may provide confusing cues that diminish the grandeur of the hymns. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely possible. Um, this is the natural condition of organists and singers. I'm not saying that my organists are, are, are just playing bad music. Rather, we describe sounds like subtle rhythmic or stylistic dissonance. Now, here's the piece I'm really digging on here. This is why I love this comment. Boom. So, I don't know if I said it clearly enough in the podcast but i think that's everything right now when it comes to what music is and the and the gap between lutherans singing their hymns because we know they're good and lutherans being known as the singing people the people who are always singing hymns not singing hymns at church always singing hymns humming them wherever we go now, I know there's a few of you out there like, I do that. Well, God bless you. We don't, right? In this whole conversation, all of the, but not me, but not me, but I'm not like that com comments I get from people. Like, I'm not talking about you, singular. I'm talking about us. It's not about you. You know the song, right? It's not about you. It's about us. We are not, like, like when people, so back to the word Lutheran a bit here, right? Lutherans were the singing people. They didn't call us that. But the Lutheran chorale, the reason they're singing in the churches at all is Lutherans. There wasn't singing before the Reformation. Not, not like there is now. And for all that's wrong with revivalism, and there's a ton that's wrong with it, that's what they're known for now. They love to sing their songs. And I'm not saying I want their songs. I'm asking why Lutherans don't love to sing their songs. You say, oh, I do love to sing my songs. Okay, you're the exception of the rule. Oh, I do love to sing them in church. We are not known by people who are not Lutheran. When you, when you say Lutheran, people are like, oh yeah, they're the weirdos who are always singing, right? That is what you think about the non-denominational Christian. It is. Like if you if you try to get a, a, a signification for that word, going to church, and evangelical, like the image you get is them singing, eyes closed, hands waving, right? It's the wrong singing, sure, but that's what they're known for. We are not known for that now. And this is this is my part of my concern, and I think as I'm digging, other complaints I've received are that uh, you aren't giving any answers. That's because I'm looking for them. <laughs> I'm trying to find them, and, and this is helping, right? The comments and the feedback I get helps me dig. Uh, one of the answers, one of the struggles, one of the problems I have with Lutheran uh, insular culture 
is that whatever we're defending, we're not defending our singing anymore. Not really. Not, if we, if we argue for organ, we argue for guitar, okay, but we're not, we don't have the singing to defend as a whole, as an us, as a, as a wider group. It is cool that, I, I experienced it, I mean, it's not as bad as it could be. I'm not just saying we're, we're evil and we're dead. I remember being at Issues Etc. Conference last uh, last summer, I think it was, and somebody in one of the papers actually started us singing a piece of liturgy, and we all sang it. It was really cool. That was, that was very neat. Loved it. How often does that happen? <laughs> um, and it also, unfortunately, kind of showed how few non-Lutherans were already there. Um, but that's, that's a different point. Um So we can all sing something we do, in fact, love when we're together if someone starts us, but we're not so in love with it that we're starting it all the time. That's, that's my question. And I think it has a lot to do with rhythm. I really do. Now, I'm not saying we got to change the rhythm on everything. I'm not. But the, the thing I did at the end of the podcast... Whether it was right or wrong, I mean, well, actually, my kids didn't like it. I later shared it with them that night, and the same kids who had complained before, like, "Yeah, that's too um, that's too happy for Advent." <laughs> True, <laughs> um, but uh, but uh, uh, the, the point was not whether I did a good job of it or not. The point is that if you any tune that's going to go. Um, da, 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 like that's not going to be real exciting to anybody's ear. And if it's going to go da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, I, I went up on a tone, sorry, cheated, you know. But but any any rhythm there at all is going to help. And our, I don't think all our tunes are necessarily meant to be without rhythm, but they, for the sake of congregational song, perhaps, I don't know. Uh, they have been written as if they have no rhythm, or the rhythm has been really shifted. And... Uh, those cues I think are big. And then organists in my experience pick up on that, particularly when certain hymns are written with quarter notes and half notes that they're not really meant to be played that slow. And I'm not sure I get the science of this. I'm only like a hack of a musician, but there's a reason that it's written that way. And then the tempo is supposed to make it go faster, but nobody, you know, the memo got dropped on that one for a lot of people. And this is part of why a Mighty Fortress is always played so slow. Um, I one time had to sing uh, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel song. I don't know anybody who doesn't like that song. And, and I just, I couldn't wait for it to be over because it was, it was so slow. I just, it was just painful to sing. So you have, you have that, that then is coming through musicians and or congregational cu- cultural groups, right? Who've only learned a song a certain way. Oh, another one, man. Uh, uh, at the, I can't even sing. Um, dun, 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 dun. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Now I'm doing it fast, but at the name of Jesus, every knee. I mean, golly, it just kills it, right? It's the rhythm's supposed to be hyped. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. I mean, it's, it's supposed to be like like huge, right? So. Yes, is rhythm. I don't think it's just the organist. I think that the organist's understanding of rhythm implies this. I think rhythm is everything to do with what I'm talking about. And then our lack of rhythm. I can't dance. I can't sing. Our lack of rhythm 
creates a stylistic dissonance that makes the visitor who's not used to what we do even more thrown off by what we do than they would have to be. So that's one thing. Like, they're not going to get the reverence. I I don't want to, I mean, come visit my church. You're not going to get any shortage of high church reverence. I'm over the top. And we don't have incense because it causes some people headaches, but like, I would do it. (laughs) So that's what I want, right? I I want, I want the, 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 the most radical, holy, visibly speaking, experientially that you can get. So I'm not really looking to diminish that. But what I want to do is have that be the only thing people are really bothered by. I don't want them to be bothered by the fact that our music just kind of sucks because we just don't even sing it because we don't like it because we play it really without knowing it. And it's, it's a bigger issue if no, I can just say everything I say, someone's going to be freaked out about. Um, I understand that teaching congregational song is not a overnight thing and sometimes it takes a great deal of practice you need to introduce new songs i get it we do that too uh it's been a little bit for my people uh but you can ask them does pacifist like stop the service and like sing the song before you're supposed to sing the song and talk about it yes (laughs) i annoy them with it because we're trying to learn our music particularly parts of the hymnal we've never used before so again, if you think I'm I'm talking about getting rid of this stuff, you, you're just not paying attention. But what I want is for, again, a outsider to be able to come in and not have the stylistic dissonance just be a matter of the fact that it is, in fact, unsingable. Because we're singing it like it's unsingable. When the stuff is not unsingable, none of it's unsingable. But the way we sing it often is. And that is... Um, well, until we can be like, yeah, okay, I can kind of get that, then it's never going to change, right? You don't have to agree with me on what singable means. Um, but to, to, to acknowledge that maybe there's, um, it's possible that we don't know our own music very well. Like, like why are, why would, if you're angry that I said that, um, what are you defending? <laughs> you know, uh, I'm, I'm going to tangent here again for half a sec. I want to come back to this, but, but it reminds me of another point that, uh, Whenever I've made this, I get like these, these, I said this, I get these blank stares like I'm crazy. So in our liturgy, in the, in the Lutheran service book, there are five divine services. Uh, by and large, they are all the same. There's a little shift here and there with some of the words. By and large, they're the same format. Divine service means word and sacrament service. And their settings are musical distinctions. So the same concepts with, you know, tweaks, paraphrase tweaks of words are set to five different sets of music with different feels to them, which is great for seasonal change and things like that. Divine Service 3 is is the old service. Right? It is the one that was in the Lutheran hymnal, TLH. Many congregations, some congregations, still use that hymnal. And there is a certain segment of the Missouri Synod that really doesn't like that service because, eh, I kind of get it, they, they grew up with nothing but that service ever. Like every Sunday, every Christmas, every Easter, every Lent, I mean, it was just that was their service. Kaboom. And it was done slowly and painfully and not as if it was meant to be just sung, although there's places that did it well, but there's places that didn't. And uh, they just 
certain segments of the of the population grew very weary of it. Then you have Divine Service 1 and 2, which both were written in the 80s or so, 70s, 80s. Much more modern feeling and sounding and tend to be a lot more... By the group I was just mentioning, they like those ones better because they're new, right? They're, they're fresh. Divine Service 4 is even newer, uh, almost to the level of being chintzy, <laughs> um, although I like it, uh, but it, it would get old even faster if you had nothing but that. And Divine Service 5 is a different beast. Uh, it is a hymnic one that, that is based on Luther's German Mass. Rarely gets used, although I do use it and I, I throw in some of the things from the other liturgies that we have, prayer and preaching and whatnot, um, to, to fill it out. But here's my here's my point, though. So uh, of these these four other divine services, if you had to take one of those services and try to make it rock and roll... Now I'm not saying do this. I just want this is just a thought experiment here. I think that most people would assume that the most modern services would make for the best rock and roll. That the 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 thing that would be the easiest to make feel like an American song or set of songs would be one of the new ones. And I I think it's completely wrong. I think that the most versatile service is Divine Service 3, the old one. I think that song could translate into almost any cultural musical setting that you wanted to and still sound good. I'm not saying we should do it in church. It would still sound good. Why is that? I don't know. But it has a lot to do with rhythm. It has to do with what the rhythm can do and how much rhythm is, uh, um, I don't know, uh, playing with universal standards. Uh it could be done. Now, that was a, as a massive tangent, but it's worth it's worth chewing on a little bit. Uh, I think the, the worst one, by the way, is Divine Service 1. It is the most dated in my mind, uh, even though it is uh, kind of like the most churchy feeling one of everything. Um, it, it, has a, it has a very uh, elitist 70s, 80s liturgical renewal um, technicality to it that I think becomes its weakness the further we get from that era. And, uh, you know, Divine Service 2, which was more of a 70s, 80s folk liturgy uh, approach, it's going to last, uh, I think. It's just eminently singable. Um, and then Divine Service 4, again, is very singable, but also very repetitive. And that's what makes it kind of a challenge. It 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 can get old very quickly. I, I love it, though. <clears throat> well placed. So anyway, these subtle rhythmic and stylistic dissonances. This is what I want us to think about. And I'm not even really wanting to think about it with, with regards to liturgy and song, although I am to some extent, because I want us to just love singing our hymns. And if you don't love the hymn, it means somehow the rhythm or there's a dissonance in your ear, right? Why? Why is there a dissonance in your ear? Now, it could be you. That's probably the first thing to assume. Uh, but maybe... Maybe part of it being you is how you've heard it, been taught it, and maybe it's just not being sung like it's a song you're supposed to sing. Yeah? I mean, I, I had a um, really interesting comment from a, a member about, about three weeks ago, a gentleman who, his wife's been a member a long time, and he uh, was reformed and transferred in um, through confirmation, affirmation of faith, uh, 
about a year and a half ago, his big hang-up had always been liturgy, and doubly, superly, uh, the Psalms, chanting. And that was kind of his big, his big thing. You know, we even talking Lord's Supper. He's like, oh yeah, yeah, that's what I think. And and yet he really didn't like the chanting. So I met with him a couple of weeks ago and uh, about a completely different issue. And I said, so yeah, I know how's how's the chanting going? Because I'd I'd been like, you know, give it a chance, just give it give it a little time, see if it grows on you. How's the chanting going? And uh, he said, oh yeah, that's not a problem at all. I realized you were just singing. And. I couldn't help but, but but smile. Now, is but but for you to follow where why I'm smiling here, I have to be a little bit. Um, I have to at least give a little bit of credit to the effort I've put into this, because the chanting that we do at St. Paul with the Psalm and the Gradual every week is not something you probably have experienced um, at another LCMS church. Not quite. It's similar. It's not super different. You'd feel at home. But we we don't use uh, two-part tones. We use four-part tones to create a, a chorus of sorts, right? Uh, and to give movement to the flow of it. And then uh, as I lead it, I sing it with a pop edge, okay? Now, that doesn't mean I'm singing pop. It just means rather than strive to sound as much like the Middle Ages as I can... I try strive to sound as much like the present day as I can. All within the form, the structure. The structure doesn't change. I got a chasuble on. I mean, it doesn't look like I'm playing guitar. It doesn't look like I'm not waving my hands in the air. I simply am trying to sing the chant like it's a song, as opposed to uh, um, inculcate, uh, uh, invoke the chant like it's a magical spell. <laughs> right? Uh, and when so when he said that, I realized you were just singing. I was like, yes, <laughs> that's all we're supposed to do. That's why we chant any of it is to sing. So if our love of chant is so much a love of chant that it's made the chant not song, isn't that defeating the purpose? That's my question. All right. So, but then the bigger question, the deeper issue is how much of our ability to converse with those who are not Lutheran, whether other Christians or not, is also an issue of rhythm and stylistic difference, dissonance, excuse me, is the reason that, um, who said it? Uh, I was chatting with someone else about the stuff Will Whedon had done uh, recently with this guy, I don't even know his name, uh, non-Lutheran who wanted to learn about Lutheranism, and he came and talked to Will Whedon, and there's really not a better guy to come and do that with. And again, I haven't watched the videos, but I've heard nothing but good stuff about them, and I fully believe they are. I think Will is fantastic. In fact, he's going to be on the podcast for different issues um, uh, in the next couple of weeks, which is exciting. But I remember someone else was telling me about, about it, and they said that um, they said that the guy who was interviewing him still couldn't quite get it. Like he got annoyed by it. Uh, like he was, um, he would ask questions like, "Why do you have to make it so complicated?" Right. Uh, or, you know, you, you're, you're making this so, um, so intense. Right. And the, the person who shared that with me had a really good point. It's like, well, yeah, uh, if the Bible is complicated, then, you know, you're going to have to deal with it. <laughs> right. Right. Um, but I, my question still is like, is there, is there something else going on here where we've created the dissonance ourselves? Is it just a matter of style? And it's not, not obviously all of it's not just a matter of style. 
the reason I care about this is because I want to inject what we have that's substantial and everlasting into the rest of Christianity. I want to reform the rest of Christianity. So I'm trying to ask the question then, why can't they hear us? And if it's because they're unrepentant, then that's that's why. But really, the whole of Christianity is just unrepentant? All of them? <laughs> I mean, you know, um, or is there is there something about the style of the way we're trying to converse that has um, has maybe been condemned in the confessions uh, as uh, as the teaching that justification by faith is a mere assent, reasonable assent to a scientific proposition, and that that has created a dissonance with people of the of the faith uh, who do consider their spirituality highly personal. Now, they're wrong about a number of things, right? But ours is not impersonal. It's just, we just have a more uh, a more awesome person in charge of everything, and we don't have to find him in ourselves, but it's, it's still pretty personal. Anyhow, uh, rhythmic stylistic dissonance. Built on the way certain pieces are habitually performed. Habit. There it is. Uh, solution? Not sure. Yeah, amen to that. Uh, if you really want to do something about it, get a few volunteers to work with the organist. This will give them a chance to perfect their style on each hymn. Implant in the pews a few people who are well-tuned. Yeah, so th- so this is where the choir is is so important to the history of Lutheran singing. So I, I talked about, you know, not being the singing people. Uh, it's because, in part, when we were the singing people, the choir didn't exist to perform anything. The choir existed to make sure the song went well in the church. They did perform. Don't get me wrong. But, but the goal of the choir was to be behind the congregation in order to sing the congregation into the right singing or the good singing or the enjoyable singing of the song. Not to sing things that are harder than the congregation could sing or better or above or just to be watched. They did that too sometimes. But the, the point of the choral, the, the choral was to help the choral, right, uh, to, to get the rest of the congregation to want to sing. And again, that is what the praise band does today. Now, I don't want to do that, but they're doing what we used to do with a, it's got a completely different agenda and a completely different style. I'm not even talking about the style at all. They just know that if you want everybody to sing, you should have some people who love to sing, singing. Now, they've turned it into a show, and so it actually kills song. So I'm, they're wrong. I can, I can hear the arguments before they even get here. If that's your argument, you're not really listening to me. You're not. You just want to argue. Okay? Because I'm not advocating that. I'm saying that they at least believe that music is important enough that you need to have a number of people who really love music doing it every week, and trying to be the leaders of it. Now, the organist should, can, is that? But is the organist really that in every congregation? When you plug in the CD with the organ on it? Is that really what's happening? Yeah. So, um, they get it. They're wrong. But they get it. They get what we used to get. And we kind of still have the heritage of it. But I'm not sure we get it. Uh, that you, you, if you had the choir and the organist and the pastor all as a team working to engender the singability of our hymns for the sake of the fact that once you start singing them at home, those words are going to be there with you. I just don't know any pla- many places that have made that a, a priority. Very difficult to do so, especially if you're a sole pastor, because there's no one who really wants to do it, which is my point. <laughs> you know, um, uh, 
we don't naturally say, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. I want this as, as, a, as a corporate body. That's too much work. It's in the way. I uh, can't do that. Oh, but we want to sing our schmaltzy. You know, the choir is the chance to sing the schmaltzy songs that aren't in the hymnal that we don't, that, you know, that, that we wish we could sing, that you won't pick. Well, well, that's a different thing, isn't it? Um, yeah. So I, I thought that was very helpful. And I think the rhythm is everything. That's very much what I'm talking about when it comes to music is rhythm. Oh, which reminds me, I do want to address, because I know someone's going to say it somewhere too, is because I've heard this argument that the reason that American Americans don't like Lutheran hymns is that Lutheran hymns are all, oh, now I'm going to lose the technical term for it, this is music theory, um, are, are by and large founded on the, uh, the downbeat, right? Uh, as opposed to the upbeat. So uh, the best, I think, kind of pop explanation of this is that if you've ever heard reggae, it's all on the upbeat, you know, bump, 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 right? Oh, polka is too. Look at that. But I was trying to play reggae, but it sounded like polka. So, um, most of our music song, much of our music song hymns are not that. They are on the they're dun 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 dun, right? Uh, as opposed to dun 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 dun. And I've heard it said that there's like this mathematical music theory, really good, really makes a lot of sense, reason why that's better for group singing. And I remember when I first heard that argument, I don't even remember the full argument, but I remember thinking, that sounds like a really good argument. That makes a lot of sense. I agree. No, And, and the problem is it doesn't work. And I'm not about pragmatics all the time. It's not like it always has to work. But if we're just talking about getting people to sing, generally speaking, then it is about pragmatics. Like if if your science is to help people sing and everything you teach about it makes them not sing, then it's bad science, right? So I'm not saying that the downbeats are bad either. I just don't think that the argument that there's this kind of kind of classical recognition that it's a higher form of music to not have the upbeat... I don't think that means people are going to sing it. And that's the question I think should be at the forefront of our, our minds is not whether or not it's classically beautiful it's whether or not people sing it. And that doesn't mean go take the songs they're already singing and just shove them into church. That's not what I'm saying. How many times do I need to caveat it? I'm saying we need to ask why they're not singing our songs and then ask if maybe we're not singing them well. And then maybe, maybe question whether or not that has something to do with the rhythm. So if you take a song that's seven, <laughs> uh, six quarter notes and one half note, and that's the rhythm, and you interject a couple of quarters and eighths, it might just revolutionize uh, the song. My daughter brought up a great point in our little conversation where she didn't like what I was saying after she like started the whole thought process, um, which was that it, it, having sung in the choir, she she saw that people had a lot of trouble learning quarter note, eighth note songs from the paper, but they had no trouble singing one that they already knew. And this is something too. Uh, I think that, uh, 
modern American Lutheran congregations, that one of the reasons we have so much trouble with our hymns is we keep trying to sing them off of the paper. We don't. We learn them off of the paper. We don't learn them by ear. Now you can you can affect this by teaching you know children hymns in Sunday school. It's a great idea, uh, but um, yeah, I, 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 there's something to that. Like, don't look at the paper and try to figure out where to sing the eighth note right. right? That's not how you learned. That's not how you learned to seek ye first. You learned to seek ye first because someone sang it, and you listen. And you, went, man, I could sing that, and then you want to. Even if you think, actually, she she that came up in the conversation. She said, "It's a cheesy kids hymn," um, and I said, "Is the word of God because uh, it is." And uh, while it may not be the most complicated thing ever, um, it can be sung, and people like to sing it. And I'm not saying I want to get rid of all our music and only sing Seeky first. I want to learn from Seeky first how to sing what we already got that's so good and we're singing. Because it can't just be the notes. It's not the notes. It's not the problem. I'm defending our hymnody, my friends, whether you know it or not. If you think I'm attacking it, you're not listening. <laughs> I'm defending it. I do not want it to go away, and I'm afraid it already has. All right. I said I'd answer your questions and only be here for an hour, and that probably is just an hour of me just diatribing there. So uh, let's see. What what do you said? Um, yeah, learning a song by ears. We're gonna learn. Yes, yes. This is the point. This is the point. We'll look into it. I don't know, but that's great. Look into things. Uh, let's see. Ryan. Hey, Ryan. How you doing, man? Um, now for the lyrics, poetry. I would not be attracted to the song for myself. Yeah, that's generally kind of the way it is with a lot of Lutheran hymns. Um, not all of them, though. And, and I think it, it really is not any of them if we knew how they were supposed to be sung. Um, it, I remember uh, it wasn't, um, oh, shoot, it wasn't Listen, God is Calling. It wasn't that one, which Listen, God is Calling is a, um, it's a, it's, it's a, that's its own little conversation, I suppose. Uh, it, man, I just got distracted by my own hair. I'm so vain. Um, <laughs> the uh, uh, it wasn't listening to God's calling, but it was a hymn in our hymnal from African descent. Okay, uh, so last last twenty years has come over and, and made it into the Lutheran service book. And I remember hearing it before it was. I heard it played as a hymn. I'd heard it somewhere, and it was this this marvelous. Um, now, dance is the wrong word. Because that's going to offend you, <laughs> um, but it was it was it made you want to move. It was a beautiful. It was just a beautiful song. You just wanted to move your head with it, and so I was excited that it was going to be sung in church. And, and then it, we played it like it was a German marching tune, and it was god awful. It was absolutely terrible. It was so bad. Like never do that again. I don't want to. I I I want to leave church when that hymn is sung, now, and I'll come back after it's over, because it just it's just not worth the time. Because the the text could have been stronger, um, and it's just not worth the time. So somehow we're trying to shove music into a box it doesn't fit in, and um, yeah. Uh, what does the Apostle Paul mean? Ooh, text in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Yikes, when he says the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. Oh, man. 
I knew that once upon a time really well. Let's see here. Let's see if I can remember it. We're going to go. I need some internets. So that will need me to go over here to Bible Gateway. And while that's doing that, we're going to see if this thing works right now. Oh, okay. Ecamm needs permission to capture the screen. It does not have permission to accents. Okay. Do not show this message again. Open system preferences. Um, I don't... No, I don't want to end broadcast. This is like... Okay. Like, really? Ecamm? Anyway. Jeez. All right. First Corinthians 7. Sorry, we're getting to it. Uh, one, C, I still have to type by talking to myself, C-O-R, that didn't do it, C-O-R, space, seven. Um, Bobo, all right, let's see here. So this whole section doesn't get a lot of play in uh, Christianity. It's awkward. It's good, but it's narrow. Uh, it really is only dealing with like a specific set of things. And then in that, even more so, a specific way in which the Corinthians were getting it wrong. And it's not a way that we're generally getting it wrong today. Which is, okay, so like, because this just doesn't happen, right? So young Lutheran guy, young Christian guy goes off to, to college, meets young Christian girl. They're both 20. They're both in love. And he says to her, I would love to get married to you, but... I want to be ready for Jesus to come back, and he could be back very soon. So we're not going to get married. Let's just be engaged forever. Like, that that just isn't happening today, right? <laughs> and that's sort of the the context of this thing. Uh, but in it, you, you have some very um, key uh, handholds, levers, uh, by which you can get into the theology of marriage and sexuality. Uh, you just kind of have to dig past a little of that Corinthian weirdness, right? And realize we got our own version of it. Uh, so, um, oh, look at that. To touch a woman, I must be in the EHV. Oh, how interesting. We're using the EHV today, folks. I, that is so fascinating. I, so I started looking at this for the sake of the book of hours. Um, but now that uh, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Interesting. So they're going with a more literal take on the text. We're going to go back. We're going to go with EHV here. That is really fascinating. Wait, wait, wait. Sorry. And now I'm, I'm distracted by this. I want to know what does King James say? Let's just find out out of curiosity. Um, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Look at that. What's New King James say? New King James version. Good for a man. Not... Look at this. So it's only ESV. NIV's got to have sexual relations. Let's see here. Um, NIV. Not that it's reliable. I'm just curious. Yep. See? Oh, interesting. Interesting. All right. So mm -mm, go back to where's the E's? Where's the E's? Come here, E. There we go. We're going to stick with Lutheran Heritage. They just kind of want to point with me. All right. So it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Um, why did I get excited about that? Whenever you translate the Bible, you're faced with a couple of decisions. Always. You just can't help. You're, 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 when you translate, you are interpreting by definition. You're taking your understanding 
which God willing is true, and then trying to put it into a different language, which may or may not be true when you're done. And so you you become an interpreter. And this is why, again, I, I think Pentecost is such a powerful thing to know that even our misunderstanding can't stop the interpretation of God's word, uh, let alone is our understanding going to be stopped, is going to stop his word. But uh, as you do that, there are times when you face words in the original that just aren't going to convey what was uh, what what the present has, and this is particularly true with things that that we would call and I'm going to use a big word. We don't have a good word for this. We don't have a colloquial way of saying colloquial slang. Hey, look at that. We do. Ha. Um, I didn't know that that was true, but now I do. That's really neat. So slang is slang for colloquial, and colloquial is a colloquial way of saying slang. Yes, yes. Um, I don't remember what the word is, but it's a fancy word for fancy. That would be what I was referencing. And if you got the Easter egg, then you got little girls. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, slang. So when you run into slang in Hebrew, right, they're not using slang the way we use slang. They have different slang. And if you just put it into English, it's going to be really weird, like like beyond weird. And you're like, well, you could teach people to know what the slang means. You, you could, although it's, it's like a hurdle you don't have to jump over. And uh, in any case, so you, you have things like that. And so what, what the history of translation will normally do is translate it as slang. Like, we'll, we'll put it into what it means, right? Is the inspired and inerrant fact the way it was said or what was said? Yeah. And I'm pretty confident we confess it's what was said. Because if you say it was the way it was said, then we all have to learn the original language. (laughs) Uh, uh, If it's what was said, then the way it was said is important for knowing what was said. And you have to be able to do that. But if you want to say it again somewhere else, what was said becomes more important than the way it's said especially in the new language, <clears throat> right? So, um, uh, yeah. So, what was said here, right, in one, Concerning the things you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Uh, now, I have not done the Greek on this here recently, but I'm going to trust that EHV and King James were being super literal. They tend, uh, King James leaned literal. They got a few things wrong, but they leaned literal. And as a result, there's some, some places where you have... Uh, odd translations. Uh, and it can be a variety of reasons for that. But now ESV and NIV are trying to make it clear, based on the context of what's coming, that uh, this is going to be a conversation about a man and a woman in a marital relationship, which involves coitus, right? Sex. Um, it's interesting, though, like why that change would be necessary like, would you really be so confused as to think that it's like she's got cooties, right? Like, like, um, you might, <laughs> uh, your weakness is cake kind of thing, right? You're going to blow up uh, if you happen to, you know, um, rub fingers with someone of the opposite sex. But it's, it isn't the way we would say it either. Although we kind of do, like, don't touch my daughter, right? Like, that's actually how I would say it. Uh, I wouldn't say don't have sexual relations. You know, that, that's how Bill Clinton would say it, um, <laughs> which is an interesting thing, don't you think? Uh, so... Point being, so what does it mean? 
the conversation is based upon the Corinthians in a letter saying to Paul some of the things that are being taught among the Corinthian church. And this goes back before this, really, where he's quoting this letter. But this one, for sure, he says, you wrote this, that it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And for, for uh, this isn't just abstinence here, right? This is that it is a better life. It is a more lawful and sanctified life to never have physical contact between the sexes. Now, I mean, that is kind of what Rome teaches, by the way. Uh, he's going to say this is not true. Uh, well, now maybe I'm wrong here. Maybe I'm wrong. Is that what he they wrote? Or is his response, but because of sexual sins, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband? See, but but is that him saying but to himself? He says, it's good not to touch a woman, but because of sin. Or are they saying, it's good for a man not to touch a woman? And he says, yeah, but because of sin, right? I'm going to lean on that one. Um, not just so I'm right, but um, but also that. <laughs> uh, I, I think that he's actually quoting what they wrote. Uh, and then he says, y- yet, hold on, you're making this case that, it, you know, it is a better life if I'm able to only piously give my life to Jesus and, and no one else and never be distracted. And he and his answer is, yeah, Article 2 of the Augsburg Confession says original sin is here. So deal with it, man, right? Because of that, it's a pretty good idea for each man to have uh, his a wife and for each woman to have a husband uh, because of our inflamed passions, because of the way that uh, the 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 created desire for procreation has turned into a cursed uh, desire for um, recreational sex. Um, yeah. So uh, the husband is to fulfill his obligation to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. It is, it is good for man and woman to be together. That's why she was created. Uh, so he would not be alone. Uh, the wife does not have authority over her own body. Her husband does. Uh-oh, misogyny. Uh, but hey, oh, slow down. Read the next sentence. Uh, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body. His wife does. Uh-oh, hyper-feministic tyranny. Um, yeah, kind of. Uh, <laughs> they're supposed to be joined as one flesh, right? The whole idea is that there's a unity going on here that is mysterious and beautiful and is a picture of Christ and the church, which is why we shouldn't reject it. Um, so, uh, also because of our sin, do not, verse five, devote one another, excuse me, do not deprive one another unless you both agree to do so for a time in order to devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So the idea is a... Uh, trying to be married without sex is like trying to sit on a two-legged stool and it ain't going to work. Uh, two, um, don't use it as a weapon in the in the relationship. That's just brutal. This is wrong. Uh, it's it's going to cause all sorts of problems. Uh, three, you are free, however, to uh, fast. You could fast for the sake of prayer. Interesting. Um, I don't... No, I've ever read or seen anybody talk much about that, so I'm not going to either, uh, but it's an interesting thought. Uh, the, the main thing, though, even in the thought, like if you're going to like not be physically joined as man and wife for a month so you can pray more, 
It's just so far from our piety. I mean, not not the not the sex part. The idea that we're gonna like be so devoted to our religion that we're gonna like give stuff up that's not chocolate, right, and alcohol and sugar for Lent. Uh, we're actually gonna sacrifice what I really want more than anything else in the world, or up there, top ten. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna not have that so that. I spend more time in devoted prayer. Um, I mean, you can say that that's your piety. God bless you. Uh, for us, us as a people, we are not nearly so pious uh, as, as a whole. And our, our Lenten practices, while laudable, uh, aren't quite here. <laughs> um, so, but his point is, even if you do that, like, don't do it for too long because you're going to have some trouble. You're going to have some trouble. You're losing out on what God created and is also using to curb then, right? Uh, the law curbs, uh, using to curb your fleshly desires. So, uh, however, I say this as a concession, not as a command. Oh, wait, you don't have to get married. For I wish all people were like me. And he's going to go and talk about himself here a little bit. Uh-oh. Uh, and his own particular spiritual gift of celibacy, which he he definitely had. And which all people were like me, but each person has his own gift from God. Oh, not everybody has the gift of celibacy. We confess this in the Confessions very clearly. Uh, One person is blessed in this way, another in a different way. He's talking about created order, vocation. He's not talking about salvation at this point, which is pretty important. Um, Now, why is my screen not moving? That's worrisome. Did it move? Okay. I can't see it move. I wonder if you guys can't even see the Bible because of that little tidbit. I bet you can't. Can you not see it? Uh. Huh. Well, I don't know. I'm looking at the text, so I'm sorry if you're not. And it probably has to do with that eCam update that happened right this morning, right before I started. (sighs) I want to go on, but okay. I'll go on anyway. So, wait a minute. Hold on. Hold on. Oh, there we go. Now it's moving. Maybe you can't see it. Oh, it moved a lot, though. Goodness gracious. All right. We're getting to the point you wanted to ask about. Slowly. Um, verse 8. I say to the unmarried and to widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry because it is better to marry than burn with desire. Right? So, particularly, you know, an elderly person, it's it's fine to not be married. And if you're young and want to not be married, go for it. But generally speaking, if you're kind of normal human, you should get married. It's just kind of a good goal. should be a primary goal in life. Probably above owning a house. Not probably. Definitely above owning a house. Uh, Definitely above owning a car. Definitely above having a six-figure salary. uh, A good marriage. Now, the exception is, of course, if you desire to never be married, then that's not a great goal, right? Uh, the goal should be never being married. But if you desire to be married, it really should be primary. It should be way up there. Now, because the danger of lacking self-control and um, uh, the danger of lacking self-control uh, and burning with desire and passion, well, that, that's a pretty big danger, yeah? So, next I command the married... This is the Lord's command, not mine. Now he's saying like his own words. Now, oh, I should say this. So there's the, there's two schools of thought on Paul's weird 
interplay of language here in 1 Corinthians 7. And I hold to one school, and but there are good, good pastors that hold to a different school. I'll give you mine first and theirs second. Uh, my school of thought is that Paul's going to share some of his opinion here. So mingled into chapter 7, you have, with the inspired, inerrant word of God, some inspired but not inerrant words of St. Paul. Because he says so. I only say this because he says it. I'm just listening to him. And I think he's saying that he is sharing his opinion, which is not without the Holy Spirit, because he's a Christian, but is not, thus saith the Lord. Now, the other school of thought is that I'm totally wrong about that. And that he's doing the whole bit about saying it's just his opinion as a rhetorical device to convince you it's not just his opinion and make you believe it is the word of God. I disagree with that approach, but there are guys who uh, could make that argument. I can't even make it very well. Um, I kind of, I, I, I think it's a, a real stretch, but I, I don't want to say that that's it's impossible here. But so I'm going to give you my my view here, right? So when he says, "I command the married," wait, I'm going to be sharing my opinion a little bit, right? I'm going to share my opinion a little bit, so I'm going to make sure you know this is not my opinion. The Lord's command, not mine. A wife is not to leave her husband. Boom. Right? So here you go. If you're talking about, and you're in this culture, which is starting to say that uh, that sex is something we should just get rid of, because Jesus is coming back soon. Again, not a problem we have today, generally. But Rome has its own version of this. Um, you are not going to use that to allow for divorce. That's not an option. The Lord's command. If she does leave... She is to remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. On the other hand, right? If she if she does what she's been commanded not to do, which is to leave her husband because of Christianity, right? Again, a problem we don't even have. I'm so pious, I'm going to divorce my husband. God says don't do that. But I'm so pious, I'm going to do it. Okay, she's done it. I'm so pious, I now want to get married again because I'm burning with passion. Great, you need to marry your husband. Right? That's that's what this is. Now, I'm not saying this has nothing to say about modern-day divorce issues. I'm just saying it's not exactly a one-to-one, apple-to-apple thing. But they are dealing with the same overall reality and command of God, which is that we're supposed to not split this thing up right? until death do us part and all that stuff. Now, husband's not to divorce his wife. Huh? But I, now here's the, <clears throat> excuse me, here's the thing. I, not the Lord, say to the rest. All right, so... I mean, back to what I was saying a moment ago. When Paul says, inspired and without error, that he is talking and God is not, is there error in what he says after that point that he says is not from God? Is it possible? That's weird, right? Right, and so it's like, when I started this off, I was saying, we don't go to this section a lot, right? You don't read this one in church very often, because it's, it's, it's awkward. What do you do with it? I think, personally, I, I think he's sharing his sanctified opinion on the matter, which informs how one can take the absolute truth and apply it, but which does not command the same application in every time and place. All right. So here's his 
his opinion. Here's what I suggest, not the Lord. Uh, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to go on live with him, he is not to divorce her. Now, interestingly, he's already said that you're not supposed to have a divorce, right? Um, but he is not to divorce her. So he's just applying what you already know to be true. Uh, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to go on living with her, she is not to divorce her husband. Right? For the unbelieving husband, and now he's going to kind of give a little bit of a reason for it. The unbelieving husband has been sanctified, and this is where the question came in, right? The unbelieving husband has been sanctified in connection with his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified in connection with her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves him, let him leave. The brother or sister is not bound in such cases cases as God has called us to peace. For how do you know... Now, see, he's going back to the previous argument now. For how do you know... Wife, whether you will save your husband. How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Again, the whole context is people leaving marriages for Christianity. He says, don't do it. God says, don't do it. And then he says, here's what, here's how you should think about this. If there is any, if there is any relationship there at all, you are better off for their sake staying in this marriage that God has commanded you stay in. If, however, they leave you and they're gone, you should not have your conscience bound by their unbelieving actions. Now, I don't think anyone could have too much of a problem with that, but it's, it's moved so that today... From this text, you do have this idea uh, that gets gets tossed around, and I've, and I've used it too. It's called abandonment. The divorce is okay if you've been abandoned. Well, okay, when is that? Paul seems to be pretty clear, like, they're gone. But today, that, that argument can be used for everything up to, you know, he just doesn't talk to me enough the way I want him to talk to me, or she, right? And so I've been emotionally abandoned. And so therefore I have a right to divorce him. Well, see, the real point here is not about a legal precedent because he said it's not that. This is not a commandment. He instead is trying to convince you that if at all possible you can remain in a marriage with somebody, you should do so, whether they're a believer or unbeliever. If at all possible in every way, that is your goal. And the reason is this question that you have at the middle of the whole thing. Because of what that remaining does, I tell you, what that remaining there does to that other person, especially if they're not a Christian, which is that it it makes that person holy and it makes the children holy. Now, the question is, what does that mean? So I want to answer that, but to help with that answer, just see this part first, right? So remaining in marriage is the goal. Is it possible that you are abandoned because of your faith or with your... Yes, but remaining in marriage is the goal. When you as a Christian then are anywhere in life, baptized into Jesus, one with his body, you are holy because he is holy. You are set apart. You are unique. You are distinct from the world. You are raised from the dead. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Uh, You don't stand upon the ruins and muck like someone who's despairing, but as one who sees the day which is coming. Because of that holiness imputed to you, right, 
Jesus Christ being it, and yet appropriated in you by faith, and through faith, and as faith, that holiness is local, it's proximate, it is, uh, it is a tangible reality that is you. And so, when you are in the house with someone who's an unbeliever, they are closer to holiness, God's holiness. They're closer to God than they would be if you were not there. Because holiness, while we receive it by faith in such a way that it does not destroy us, holiness is not a matter of, of, of faith. Holiness is a matter of God. God is holy. Whether you believe it or not, it doesn't matter. You believe it or not, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter one whit. And so when the holiness of God comes close to you, it comes close to you. Straight up. Hey, all y'all people down there, I'm on the mountain and I'm holy. And if you touch it, you're going to die. So stay away because I'm actually here. Right? Or, uh, hey, hey guys, let's, um, this party's been great tonight now that I'm king. How about we pull up some of those implements from that Hebrew temple and get drunk on those while the strippers dance? Oh, look at that ghostly hand over there. Because the implements were themselves holy, right? Proximity, proximate. So, uh, with that being the reality that now has been put into you as a stone, a living stone in the foundation built on the foundation of the temple, which is Jesus. That means that if you're in a relationship with someone who's an unbeliever, I'm not talking about dating, by the way. <laughs> don't, don't get married to an unbeliever if you have a choice. Um, I'm not talking about dating. I'm talking about if you're married to someone who has an unbeliever, you being a Christian brings God into their life, is God in their life. So if you leave them because of God, God leaves them. Not only in like you're saying that in a sense, that's your confession to them. God's leaving you. God doesn't care about you. Just me as I leave. But you're actually doing it too because you, you were the manifestation of God's face in that place via your connection to Jesus. And you're taking that away. And so his question at the end is, is kind of the thing, right? So, you know, how do you know whether or not your pious and faithful reliance or waiting or patience within the marriage will not in the end make it so that holiness is now extended to your husband as well or your, or your wife as well? You don't know. You don't know. You're deciding, you're deciding election for yourself by the divorce. And he's saying, don't do that. Do what all Christians do and, and suffer the tribulation in faith and hope, seeing the greatest mission you have, the loving care of your spouse who doesn't believe, and the knowledge that you bring holiness into that life with every action and then every word, which then you will confess Christ. That will have the potential for saving them. What this does not mean is that they're saved without faith or that they're saved just because you're there. And the same goes for the kids. Right? They're not saved just because you're there. They're holy as compared to the rest of the world because the church and the word of God is there in you. Yeah. Um, and that is the only way anyone can be brought into the church of God. More, right, is that the, the word of God comes through us to them. Yeah. So, 
Each person is to live with the situation the Lord has assigned him when God called him to faith. I give the same command in all the churches, right? So, so wherever you are, contentment is pretty key. Now, he's actually not going to say that doesn't mean never change anything. He's just going to say that um, Christianity is not your excuse for abandoning your vocations. Uh, so, you know, circumcision, all this stuff. Let, let, his, let a person stay the way he was called. Were you a slave? Eh, don't worry about it. Are you able to become free? Go for it. Right? So it's, it's not like you have to stay a slave. The point is you don't have to not be a slave. It's okay. You can like not have your best life now. Oh, that's my confirmation verse. You were bought with a price. Oh, it's not this one though. Same, oh, it's in six. He repeats himself. You were bought with a price. Don't become slaves of men, right? So don't sell yourself into slavery. Anyway, so, I mean, there's a whole lot more we could get into there, I suppose, in terms of uh, how far that goes. But I think it generally kind of dealt with the question. Um, what was the question? It definitely wanted us to look at 1 Corinthians 7. Let's go back and find the question here. Come on. Did I really get you guys talking there? Um, no, I don't see it. You all went off. Yeah, you, you guys really went off. Man, uh, what, what does the Apostle Paul mean in 1 Corinthians 7 when he says the unbeliever has been made holy because of his wife and the wife? Yeah, the proximity of God has come close to the unbeliever in that individual. That's what he means. That's what he means. My favorite way of thinking about this, um, what's, the, what's the name? Of, is it, it Majora? Majora's mask. That's it, yeah, yeah. Um, my favorite way of thinking about this is the Lord's Supper. So if, and, and don't get too hung up on this, but it's I think it's helpful. So for like a super brief moment in the divine service, the pastor is more holy than everybody else. And it happens like this. The pastor and the people have come in as the people of God to receive Jesus. And we sing and we hear the word of God. And then the pastor goes to the altar and there's some bread and there's some wine there. And we pray. And then the pastor repeats the words of Jesus about this bread and wine in front of you and to you on Jesus' behalf. And somewhere in this, the mystery of the Holy Sacrament is present. That is, the bread and wine is not only bread and wine, but is now the veritable, physical, flesh and blood of Jesus to be eaten and drunk. And at that moment, whenever that is, the pastor is more holy than you. And the only reason is because he's only about six inches away from it, and you're like 20 feet. So he is closer to holiness. It's pure holiness, and he's closer, and you're further away. Huh? But then he eats some. So now he's really more holy than you. Now he's got holiness inside him, and you don't. And then he walks down, and he puts it in your mouth. And now you're holy, too. All because God declares you holy. Right? It is not about the pastor being a better guy. So don't get me wrong. But it's helpful too, right? Uh, God is declaring, He's not just declaring, but making you, like physically making you holy. And then you being made holy because Jesus is inside of you, go home to your unbelieving spouse. And they're closer to Jesus than they were before you got home. That's the answer. Doesn't mean they believe. Yeah, um, but it means that God is light in their life through you. 
Let's see here. I'm going to go all the way down the bottom. Um, Luke 21, 14. What does that say about apologetics prep? Or is this specifically about the 12 and Pentecost? That's a really um, unclear question, given that I don't have Luke 21 in front of me. Let's see. I can't type. You can't see me type because I have it not showing but I will soon. Here we go. Boom. Luke 21. What was it? Uh, 14. Ah. Um, sorry, Ecam sending me these messages again. Really tired of it. Um, Ecam is my software. I don't know why it's doing that. Uh, 21, 14. Come on. All right. Make up your minds beforehand how to defend yourselves. Ah, interesting. And this is like the the pseudo end of the world dialogue to match Matthew twenty four twenty five. Nation will rise against a nation. That's, that's verse ten. Earthquakes, fires, signs from heaven. Uh, before these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. Specifically, the apostles. Yeah, uh, and so these are all signs of things happening before the destruction of the temple, not the end of the world. Uh, hand you over into synagogues, right? I mean, people haven't been handed over into synagogues for a long time. Right? This, this is early church kind of stuff particularly the apostles. Uh, prisons bring you before kings. Paul actually walked through that himself. So this is very much a setup for Acts. It will turn out to be your opportunity to testify. Again, that's what Paul will do with it in Acts. Uh, so make up your minds not to prepare. Excuse me, I read it wrong earlier. I thought I thought it sounded weird. Uh, make up your minds not to prepare beforehand how to defend yourselves, for I will give you words of wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Now, he's talking about going into court for being a Christian to the apostles. And he's saying, decide now, you're not going to try to get declared innocent. You're not going to try to get off. You're going to get convicted. Own it. And then know that at the time, they will be unable to contradict the word of God. They'll be able to accuse you, push you to death. They will be unable to to contradict the word of God. And it will be plain to all. That's what it's talking about. This isn't about whether or not you can do apologetics. Like, that's just so far away from this. You certainly are free to study the world and creation. I mean, the, the, the creation and the scriptures. You're able to study and know these things and understand how they reasonably hold together. It's not like Paul didn't spend a great deal of time in the scriptures. The point is not to decide to not study or to not know how to talk about Jesus, or that you have to, although you do have to listen. Um, the point is to decide, I'm not going to defend myself when I'm accused. Make up your mind now not to defend yourself against the accusations that will be used to distract everybody from what you're really talking about which is the resurrection. Huh? Um, you'll be betrayed. They'll put you in a death. You'll be hated by all people. Not a hair on your head will perish. That's that's fun. You'll be put to death, but not a hair on your head will perish. What? Nah. Um, patient endurance. Tribulation. Uh, you will gain your lives. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, there you go. And it's going to talk about the uh, destruction of Jerusalem. So, yeehaw. Um, 
This way? Yeah, that way. All right. Uh, we don't get our theology, our morality, or our politics from our entertainment source. Yeah, that's, that's good. I do think it's worthwhile to learn your theology, morality, and politics in dialogue is wrong and conversation is wrong, but in debate with your entertainment source. I think that's a really valuable thing. That they should, you should be finding echoes of truth that the pagans can't deny in what they produce, and you should be finding clear distinctions uh, that show you why their way is futility and death and what they produce. And that should encourage you uh, because you know you have a better way. Um, so, but you're right, we should not get it straight from it. Hmm. All right. Uh, ooh, so this is like kind of what I was saying earlier. Yeah, people these days. Yeah, we do. And it's because, I don't know, even in our confessions, which I subscribe to, the word sanctification sometimes is used to refer to good works. And sanctification is a word that means holiness. So this is a, a longstanding difficulty in, in seeing what can I guess ultimately be a fairly narrow distinction between holiness and righteousness, right? Holiness and, and uh, action. But at like the deepest root in the scriptures, the holiness is the presence of God. And then the righteousness is what God's presence does, right? God's presence never brings unrighteousness with it. So they are tied. If you're holy, you're going to be righteous, and if you're unholy, you're going to be unrighteous. But they're not the same thing. Because one's about source and proximity uh, and God. And, and one is about the result of that source, uh, the, the things that that God does. Yeah. So um, I, you, won't, you don't hear me say sanctification much for that reason, because I just I don't want to be confused. So I'll talk about holiness instead. And if I want to talk about works, I'll talk about mortification. I'll talk about the new obedience. Uh, these are also words out of our confessions uh, and the scriptures. And uh, uh, this should not be a denial of um, the need for good works. I'm, I'm really trying to teach that more clearly and not muddle it uh, with justification. So, yeah. Mm -mm. Been listening to Jacko. That, that that good bit, that good two minutes before workout, man, I can't not work out when I listen to that. It's to the point now where I'm like, no, I'm not going to listen to that because then I'll work out. And I mean it. Like, like I don't want to work out. Like this morning, I didn't work out. And I know if I put that on, I'll have to work out afterwards. <laughs> so I don't do it. Um, uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah, Jocko. Uh, man, that guy is something. I'd love to have a conversation with that guy. Uh, he's, a, he's a Gnostic. But, um, uh, yeah. Uh, I don't know why I put this one up here, Jimmy Dean. Uh, anybody else that's not the same conversation? Interesting. Joseph, uh, talking about the ultimate birth rate below the national average. Well, all Anglo birth rates are below the national average because the national average is being averaged by not Anglos. And since the LCMS is Anglo... Whether we like it or not, I'm sorry. Yes, there's like a 3% of you that aren't, and I'm not trying to say you shouldn't be here. I'm trying to say we got a, a weird little cultural click going on um, uh, because within our little cultural click, we have virtuized non-childbearing to the level of uh, rather extreme um, 
uh, edges and, and to the level where the only way to like, it seems the only way I've seen young people push back against it is to radicalize their response. I don't think the response should be radical either, uh, but uh, we have radicalized not having kids. Uh, and as a result, we don't have many young people in the church. It's it's kind of amazing. Uh, we need more 20 child families. Well, whew. Um, I agree we need we need to just get married. So I would just say this. Yeah. God bless you, Joseph. You're young. Um, and your zeal is wonderful. Don't radicalize your reaction. So the answer is 20 child kids and, and uh, you have to get married young. How about we start with having getting married be the thing we all want? Like, that's the goal. How about... Uh, instead of being like like prescribing very narrow expectations of life, 20 kids, like the number of 20 kid families that ever existed, <clears throat> it's pretty hard to hit that number. It really is, even if you want to. We, we wanted to get far. We got five. So um, how about instead of doing what the law would have us do, meaning like the opinion of the law, and creating prescriptions that are not yet written in God's word, why don't we take the prescription that is written in God's word and radicalize on that? And what is that prescription? That, oh, you're a young person, one-year-old, three-year-old, five-year-old, seven-year-old, nine-year-old. We, your elders, are duty-bound to tell you that the most important thing in life as a life goal is to have a son and then daughters in a healthy marriage. And not as though one without sons and only daughters hasn't achieved it. Because by means of the miracle of marriage, if you got four daughters one day, you're going to probably have four sons. It's the way it works. Okay? But we've, we've so rejected... The value of man in general, that it's offensive if I say having a son as a goal. <laughs> and you wonder why the guys don't want to have kids. It's because you've told them like they can't be excited about having a son. Why would they want to have a kid then? You've, just, you've torn away creation from them. Uh, as if somehow it's insulting to women to think men are good. How is that? I mean, can't, can't they both be good in their own way? Yeah. Uh, and, and can't it be a, a primary goal of life to have a son to carry on the family name and then have daughters as well? Right. And uh, yeah, sure. Has that been abused in the past? Absolutely. Is most of it wrong? Yep. The abuses are all wrong. You're not going to believe me when I say it. You're going to dismiss that. But it's, it's true. Those abuses are wrong. Shouldn't sell your daughter for a camel. Really shouldn't happen. This is not, not the way it was supposed to be. Uh, and uh, as one who has four daughters and one son of my five, I mean, I got to tell you. Uh, daughters are great, huh? man. Uh, but that doesn't mean sons are not. Forget how I said it. If it was too offensive, just stick with the goal should be to get married and have kids. Like that should be what we tell you. Anybody under 30, get married and have kids. Like that's life. Do it. Stop chasing the rest of it. Do that. And then follow the rest of it as best you can underneath that. We as a people will be better off if we do that. Because that's what God's given us as a blessing. Not a law. A blessing. Our big problem right now is we don't want the blessing. It's not that we aren't keeping the law enough. We aren't keeping the blessing. 
we don't want it. We think it's a law. We think the blessing is a curse. Huh. Kind of weird. So um, that doesn't mean if you can't get married, you should anyway. It doesn't mean marry the first, you know, not corpse that says hi to you. It doesn't mean be unwise. It doesn't mean don't think about human things that matter, like uh, communication and psychology and understanding and family background and how those things merge together. It doesn't mean any of that. It doesn't mean marry someone who doesn't have your faith. But it does mean reorienting our life goals, like like vision casting for our heads away from thinking that the life goal is to, to have fun <laughs> and to have money. Because that's what we all think. How do we get to that point? Don't tell me I'm just complaining. Come on. Uh, okay, I think I want to go play. <laughs> Speaking of, um, uh, let's see. I'm trying to see if there's another uh, easy easy question here in the comments. Uh, yeah, I mentioned this earlier. So yeah, um, I've heard really good things about that 10 minute Bible hour. Guy's got a lot of views. It's great that uh, Will was on there. And got a little little nameplay for us Lutrans. Um, da, da, da. Will's an amazing dude. Um, I don't like it when the choir leaves the middle of church. Mm. Yeah, well, when they're singing more than one service, it's a little tough to expect them to, to be around because it's not what we expect. <laughs> we don't see it as that, right? Like if the pastor left after his second sermon and just, just let the rest of the church deal with it. We'd be like, but we pay you. Well, okay. Well, and, and for that reason, um, most uh, most evangelicals pay their musicians, all of them, because they value it. And I'm saying we don't. If you won't pay for it, don't tell me it's just because you're, you know, elbow grease. Nah. If you value it, you'll pay for it. Uh, you will not, unless you can do it better yourself. Right. Uh, hmm. Yeah. Long hymns divided into parts. Yeah. What I think we should do, I'm crazy though. Um, you know, you got like the 10, 10 verse hymn. We just need to write a secondary tune that fits with it. That's the chorus. So you are going different tune. One, two, one, two, one, two. Or one one two one one two, because that's what our ears do. That's not changing the hymns. That's not changing the liturgy. That's loving it and wanting it back. I want to not have people be afraid of a fifteen verse hymn. I want them to say, "Oh, good, I get to sing the chorus four times." Then, <laughs> oh man, what is the one? This is the feast. We do sing the chorus one too many times, and this is the feast. Uh, and I. Fair disclosure, just opinion. Divine Service 1, this is the feast. Not my favorite. Not my favorite. Love 2. 2 is fantastic. Um, bu- 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 bu. All right. Well, let's see. I think we're probably good. Oh, Mom Monster wants to share how we shop at Kohl's together. What's up, Mom Monster? Bought my same shirt for nearly five-year-old son. It will be before he wears it. It will be years before he wears it, but I love it. Yeah, well, um... Be careful because I've been told it is an Illuminati code sign, and apparently I'm part of the Illuminati, or I've at least submitted to them because I wear this shirt. But uh, it is kind of a cool shirt. It's uh, Link is just awesome. Like I don't know. I mean, I don't know how they took a guy who looks kind of like a girl and wears a really funny hat and made 
lots of young men just think he's awesome anyway. Because he still is. I mean, uh, but it is kind of a quirk of history, I think, a little bit. Especially given how he was originally drawn and whatnot. He, he wasn't that inspiring. The game was just that good, right? Uh, it was just that good for the time. Um, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, okay. So, I think we're good. Let's see. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, not for next time, Jimmy. We'll do it. Those are going to close on. Best Zelda game. Now, it's, see, I don't count as an answer. So, if you disagree, it's because you, you have to just, like, allow that I have a, a limited canon. Because the, well, what was it called? The Wii? The Wii killed Nintendo for me. I was Nintendo diehard. All my friends had Xbox. I was like, nope, Nintendo is Zelda. I'm gonna play Zelda no matter what. I am a Zelda fan. And then I learned that you could like swing the sword in Zelda. And I was like, dude, I'm buying a Wii. And I bought the Wii. And I probably played for an hour, maybe three. And I never put that game back in. And it probably was a great game if I could have not wiggled my hand randomly to fight stuff so nothing i say matters after that right like like the rest of that is gone i only have what is before that uh which is the real canon anyway because uh, you know even the all the mobile stuff is is after that uh the only mobile one before that was like the original game boy one which was not not it was like black and white right um not even really a thing so i am pretty limited in this you you got uh zelda one you got Adventure of Link. Uh, you got um, Ocarina of Time. No, 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 no. That's later. Uh, Link to the Past. Yeah. Ocarina of Time, Majora's Mask, and then... Oh, what's the other one? What's the other one? There's one more. Or is that... Am I confusing it with Ocarina of Time? No, I think there's one more. Um, oh, Wind Waker. Ooh. Golly, you want... Uh, just to be obstinate... Um, I'm going to say Wind Waker is my favorite one. That was a good game. It's a really good game. Uh, I also... See, I'm, I'm, I'm totally a dark horse here. I think The Adventure of Link was fantastic. That game was hard. And um, as a follow-up to Zelda, if they'd just done Link to the Past, kind of Zelda 2-ish, I'm not sure it would have, like, carried... I don't know. It might have. It might have. Uh, but there was something about what uh, Adventure of Link did that kept this picture going, right? A little bit. Link was bigger. He was stronger. Um, and you're you're able to really hack and slash a bit. And yeah, sure, the, the sideways scroller. But but it also then kept you... Uh, it, it made Zelda uh, branch between, say, the Metroid games, right? Or the... Um, uh, Castlevania, uh, that style, it, it pushed Zelda into that for a moment, which then you have to skip the adventure, uh, skip um, Link to the Past. But when you get to Ocarina of Time now, you actually have that adventure of Link kind of coming back in terms of the approach, only now it's 3D, right? But you're also still the top-down scroller as well. So I really love Adventure of Link, and I think I'm not out of canon to say that it it was essential to what Zelda became. With all that said, Ocarina of Time, by far the best one. No question. I don't think anyone can really debate that that is the best Zelda game ever made. 
it never been surpassed. I've heard the most recent one's really good, but I don't know. People say episode uh, episode one through three were really good too. And man, you, you gotta love those. Now, if you don't like, uh, oh, what's the other? Whatever episode eight was, I can't remember. So yeah, oh, it starts to hurt after a while. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, I. But Wind Waker is my, the most fun I ever had. I think was playing Wind Waker, just in terms of like, uh, kind of um, the original childhood awe that Zelda threw at my little eight-year-old head. Like I couldn't believe what I was doing. Like I'd, I, I'd been playing, you know, Atari Combat up to this point, and <laughs> it's just, oh, you know, like like that. That awe, Wind Waker managed to do that for me again in my in my probably my twenties. Yeah, it was a really cool game. So, cool. Good question. Um, and I'm not going to look at your comments anymore. I'm just going to go. Oh, wait. I am not going to go. Scott, I'm sorry, man. Not a fan of the gaming discussions. Not a gamer. It's a waste of your time. Uh, well, dude, you got to like let people be people. Um, I'm sorry. It's probably not going to stop. Uh, if people ask, I answer. Uh, oh no, oh no, you don't want this. I'm sorry, Scott. Uh, Castlevania, probably my favorite all time NES game. Mm, really? It's good. Okay. If, if you don't like games, I'm probably done for the day. So God bless you. Catch you later. Um, Dean, if you don't mind a little blood splatter and you have any kind of computer, Check out Salt and Sanctuary. Got it? Salt and Sanctuary. It is Castlevania. It is Metroid. Kinda. But with Zelda and like Final Fantasy. Like it just it just pulls it all together. And uh and you play a little bit and you can get a second player in. I've been playing with my my son who's eight now. And uh we have rarely had such good bonding. It's really really quite something um, funny how that worked that way. But uh, you can even be a character. There's a hunter class that you get a whip. You can, you can have a whip as a hunter class. You can be a sword fighter. You can be all the, all these different stuff. So it's uh salt and sanctuary. So it's well done. Bloody in like a, in like a 2d pixel way, but you know, what you going to do? All right, everybody. I am going to go see if my game downstairs crashed crashed to desktop I really hope it didn't no show next week Patreon if you like what I do really appreciate it podcast from two days ago eh, it's there newsletter on Monday we'll have a link to where you can pre-order my new book Without Flesh why the Church is Dying Even Though Jesus is Alive from Concordia Publishing House coming out in February. It's interesting. You cannot find it, or I could not find it by searching for it on Amazon. Thanks, Amazon. But it's there. It's there. And uh, there'll be a link to that in the Monday newsletter. So uh, you'll, you'll get a chance to buy it, I'm sure, eventually. Coming out soon. I think that's it. I think that's it. I need coffee. Thanks for being here. Don't wallow in the muck. Okay.